Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. All right, you guys, Embark for Breeders is celebrating DNA week all month. Visit EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders and use the code PUREDOGTALK to enjoy $20 off each Embark for Breeders dog DNA kit. Pair Predictor is the newest feature in a suite of breeder tools available with the My Embark for Breeders online experience. Just pick a sire and dam from your account and view the predictions for producing clear, carrier, or at-risk dogs for specific genetic health conditions. The Embark for Breeders Dog DNA Kit tests for 210 genetic health conditions, highlights breed-specific results, includes 35 traits, such as coat color and body size, and is the only DNA test to use a COI percentage score. Your test results also come with a downloadable OFA submission report. Find out why responsible breeders trust Embark to enhance their breeding program. Right now, you can save on the most accurate, most comprehensive dog DNA kit. Just visit EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders and use code PUREDOGTALK to take $20 off each Embark for Breeders dog DNA kit in your order. That's EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders and use the code PUREDOGTALK. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and I've got a really, really interesting topic for us today, you guys. The Chinook breed in the working group is relatively unknown, and many of the judges I know would pretty much give up a body part just to get to see one at a dog show. So we have with us today Ginger Corley, who is, I'm informed, like the longest standing Chinook breeder in the country. And also we have Karen Hinchy, who's the chair of the Chinook Owners Association Health and Genetics Committee. And this is just going to be a fascinating conversation. And I really am looking forward to learning about the history of the breed and also some of the really sort of proactive and interesting ways they're trying to preserve this breed. So welcome, ladies. Hello. Thank you for having us. Hello. So give us a little bit of 411. Ginger, talk to us about what brought you to Chinook, the longest standing Chinook breeder in the country. What brought you to investigating the preservation of this breed? Well, I went in search of a new breed for myself a few years after being out of college. I had grown up with dachshunds and German shepherds and knew that dachshunds were too much dog for me, and German shepherds were not the same as what I remembered. So I drew up engineering specifications and wanted a dog that was large but not bigger than me. I wanted a dog that was friendly. I wanted a dog that didn't require a lot of grooming. And eventually, I kept narrowing down the list and came to Chinooks without 
really grasping how rare they were at the time. This was back in the 1980s. And I just didn't realize that at the time when I brought home my first Chinook, there was maybe a hundred alive in the whole world. Wow. And the breed is centered primarily in the U.S. and Canada, very few exceptions outside of that area. And I think I'm somewhere around 200 Chinooks have either been born at my house or walked through here at some point or other. Okay, so let's talk about the Chinook. Talk to me, Karen or Ginger, whoever would like to take this and run with it. Talk to me about the history of this breed. It is a breed about which I know practically nothing. So I'm excited. Well, it was designed to be a mid-level dog, perhaps not originally, but in the long run, it fills the niche between the smaller, racier Siberian and the large, freighting Alaskan Malamute. The Chinook is the gentleman's carriage horse of sled dogs. Oh, that's cute. It may not be as fast as originally the Siberian. Nowadays, we would say the Alaskan Husky, which is the racing machine that is on your Iditarod teams. Those dogs are much smaller than your average Chinook. It's not going to be the huge freighting dog that the Alaskan Malamute and some of the other indigenous freighting breeds of the northern extremes were. But it can go for a reasonably long distance at a darn good clip, carrying a relatively heavy load. Plus, it is the sled dog you can live with. (laughs) They don't want to run away from home like your average Siberian just has its eyes on the horizon. Mm -hmm. They have very little urge to fight with other dogs. A lot of us will own multiples. I personally have four adult Chinooks and one standard Manchester Terrier here. And the Chinooks put up with endless abuse from the Terrier. (laughs) Karen, I think you have, what, five or six these days? Yeah, five these days that live in harmony at low low dog aggression. Nice. Plus, they're readily trainable. Which is, again, not necessarily a trait of most of the northern breeds. Okay, so where were they developed? Is this a more Canadian breed? You were saying they're primarily in the U.S. and Canada. Talk a little bit about kind of how they came to be. They were developed in the New England area by a gentleman who had been up in Alaska during the Yukon Gold Rush. And he had worked as what was known as a dog puncher back then. He was delivering supplies and mail to the prospectors that were looking for gold. And his favorite dog while he was up there was one he called Chinook. And eventually he decides to breed his ultimate sled dog. 
they were a unique look of their own. They were a big yellowish, what we now call tawny, or might be considered fawn to people that have Great Danes sled dog. Their coat, rather than standing off from the body, like you see in a show husky or Malamute, it's more of a short-coated St. Bernard type where it lies flatter to the body, but there is substantial undercoat there. And those dogs, there was three in the initial litter, and they turned out to be just magnificent sled dogs. Hmm. And from there, things took off. Fascinating. And since Karen is the New England resident these days, I'll let her jump in with the rest. I love it. Okay, so Karen, tell us. So this has got to be what, like the late 1800s this is happening? Early 1920s. Okay, cool. In fact, it's worth stating now the Chinook is the state dog of New Hampshire, because I think there's only a few states and dog breeds that we have where American breeds are recognized as official state dogs. So we're pretty proud of that. And the actual dog Chinook and his progeny were a large number of the dogs that competed in the first races in the New England Sled Dog Club, which is a pretty famous group up here. This is before Leonard Seppala and some of the Siberians arrived and took over the speed scene. Right. The interesting thing about Chinooks, though, is Arthur Walden, as Ginger described, sort of created them and stewarded their future and their breeding for the first sort of 10 or whatever years. Then he went off to Antarctica. And when he came back, ultimately, the breed ended up passing through one person at a time as the main breeder. So first it was Walden, and then it was Lombard. And as you go down all the way through the 70s, there was generally one single breeder in the country in the world that controlled the breeding of Chinooks. And as a result, of course, it kept the numbers low and the breed very rare, which is kind of got some good points, but has a lot of bad points in terms of a sustainable population. So in 1965, Chinooks were listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the rarest dog in the world with 125 alive. Wow. And then fast forward to just before Ginger stepped onto the scene, we know there were 11 intact Chinooks in the world in 1981, when three breeders got together and decided to try and sort of rescue the breed coming forward out of those 11 dogs. And those 11 dogs were related through a four dog bottleneck a few years back. So kind of similar to what you hear of other European breeds happening after World War II. Right. You know, Chinooks lasted for a while, but then came through an enormous pinch point with very, very few dogs. Ultimately, in the late 80s, they had grown the breed to several hundred from 11 intact dogs. And people really started trying to sort of formalize it and seek UKC recognition with the United Kennel Club. And at the time, people had already been crossbreeding because there was no formal breed standard. There was no formal breed organization. And there were a large number of very closely related dogs and some concerning health conditions. So when they went to the UKC, they had, you know, here's the population of Chinooks in the world. Here's the ones we know are what we would consider purebred. But we have some that are a little confusing, and we have some that we know are not purebred Chinooks. Mm -hmm. And in an attempt to sort of try and keep that population moving forward together, the Chinook Owners Association, the parent club at the time, agreed with the United Kennel Club to create a program where the crossbred dogs could progress through the generations and ultimately seek purebred recognition. Okay. I should add at this point that 
in the process of handing the stud book over to the United Kennel Club, we were one of the first breeds to use DNA parent verification to back up the pedigrees we had. Okay, so that is amazing. So UKC and the Chinook Owners Association teamed up, you said, Karen, late 80s, early 90s? I think it was officially in 91, so early 90s. Excellent. Okay. So Chinooks were not accepted into the American Kennel Club for quite some time after that. So talk to me a little bit about sort of the modern day and how this has progressed, Karen. So the original crossbreeding program continued forward and ultimately three sort of new founder or non-Chinook dogs were added to the population and fourth generation, third generation descendants were recognized as purebreds. And AKC recognition was, I believe, 2012. Yeah, sounds about right. At the time when they were pursuing that, there was a lot of discussion about should we include dogs that we know come from this cross program or not? As you can imagine, the program was controversial. Some people were for it. Some people were not supportive. At the time, just prior to AKC recognition, people realized the vast majority of the breeding population descended from one of the outcross dogs in the 90s. Oh, interesting. It was decided at the time that the crossbred descendants would be included in the initial pool recognized by the AKC. Okay. In fact, the first Chinook on TV at the National Dog Show was a fifth generation descendant of the cross program. And the first Chinook on TV at Westminster was a sixth generation descendant of the program. And right now, today, our entire breeding population includes one of those non-Chinook ancestors from the 90s. Okay. And so how has that developed? Are you still running into problems with health issues or numbers or how is it going? I'm saying I show dogs in the Northwest, so I see a Chinook every now and then. But honest to God, in the ensuing 10 or 15 years, I don't know that I've seen more than 10. (laughs) Yeah. So what we found from the first program was that we did not identify any new health conditions that came from it. We did find that the descendants through the fifth generation, which is I think the last time we completed a survey, had a reduced incidence of some health conditions and similar incidence of other health conditions. So it in fact did improve the health. And we found that we still have a very closely related breeding population through some genetic work that we've done with Mars DNA, with Wisdom Panel, with Embark, et cetera. So we still have a closely related population. The good news is health and longevity is pretty good for a dog our size. Anecdotally, we do see longevity decreasing and have seen some things pop up like cardiac conditions in middle-aged to older dogs and perhaps a higher incidence of cancer that we need to do a formal study to validate those anecdotal findings. But it started to generate some concern about there's still only about 1,100 Chinooks in the world. There's probably more Labrador retrievers born in an afternoon than than we have Chinooks in the world. So it's a whole different scale we're talking about. But with a population that small and that inbred, there was a lot of talking about, should we expand our new founder base again and add some more genetic diversity to help us solidify good health and longevity? And so the Chinook Owners Association did kick off a new crossbreeding program in 2015, and we've added four new founder dogs through five litters in the last six years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's pretty much where we are. The second, our current program at this point will not be part of the AKC population because the AKC stud book closes in January of next year. And those dogs won't be UKC purebred 
right. or purebred eligible at that point. Right. But we'll obviously continue to monitor the populations and see there's a little bit of a split between people that are more supportive of the crossbreeding program and therefore may not be registering and showing in AKC and people that are focused on the AKC Chinook, which would be the ones you'd probably see at the shows. But also in a breed with so few dogs to begin with, they're not going to be a big presence at shows to begin with. Right. And I mean, I come from rare breeds, so I get it. I love it. You know, I always am fascinated by it. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. Pure Dog Talk is proudly sponsored by Trupanion, medical insurance for the life of your pet. Trupanion cares passionately about pets and makes sure their policy has what it takes to serve you and your furry companions. In fact, they are the first pet insurance provider to cover certain health conditions associated with breeding animals through their specialized breeding rider. Their industry-leading coverage does not stop there. Trupanion's free breeder support program also allows you to send your litters home protected with an offer for a Trupanion policy. Learn more about all of the perks that Trupanion offers breeders by following the link on my partner page at puredogtalk.com. So this is a complete curiosity question, but so your AKC stud book closes the first of next year. Your UKC crossbreeding program is still going. At some point, those dogs will be UKC purebred. Could you then take one of those UKC purebred dogs and register it with the American Kennel Club as purebred? If they would let us, we could. I believe all things are possible, but my understanding is the AKC Parent Club would need to petition the AKC to let them open a stud book again. And then as you can do with some breeds, like I think Border Collars, you can register if they're ASCA registered. So I think that's a possibility for the future. And, you know, we'll just have to see how things work out down the road. Interesting. And I mean, what we're seeing right now is we have less than 10% of the Chinook population is part of the new cross program. You have to consider the rest of the Chinook population is part of the old cross program. Right. <laughs> but what we have observed, and it's small numbers, but what we have observed so far is 12% of the litters are crosses. It's about 16% of the new population. We have had a 14% C-section rate in the crosses versus about a 40% C-section rate in the purebreds. And we've had 0% neonate fatalities in the crosses versus about eight and three quarters percent in the purebreds just in the last year. So we're actually in the process of being able to collect some really interesting data for a rare breed that may be helpful and useful for other people as we go forward. We were talking about that a little bit before we got started. You know, whether you agree with it or not, and I violently disagree with it, frankly, the situation in Europe in which now three separate purebred breeds have at some level been banned from being bred because either they're brachycephalic or somebody thinks they're not healthy enough or whatever. This information will be useful to those people and conceivably other people as the potential for this sort of animal rights driven drivel, sorry, a little bit of an aside there, takes hold. So I think this is really, really useful information. Yeah. I mean, we have aspirations and there's all kinds of research out there in other mammals, but not so much in dogs. I know Europe has some crossbreeding programs, particularly the Scandinavian Kennel Club. Linda Huns are doing one. I think Kukerhuns just, I probably said that wrong, but Kukers are are kicking one off. 
Well, I know the Lundahuns are doing one very, very specifically. I don't know what's going on with the Quakers, but I do know for a fact the Lundahuns are, again, much like Chinook, that limited number of dogs. Yep. And there's a couple of, I know Barbets. There's a few other breeds as well, Mm -hmm. but they're all in sort of, so we have the benefit of being eight plus generations out from the first program. We know what worked and what didn't work there, but it also wasn't, we didn't have the genetic testing capability at the time. We didn't have a comprehensive pedigree database at the time. So there's a lot more tools we have now that hopefully will help us be able to shape it and target the program to better produce more quickly the sort of healthy typey dogs we want that have that little bit of extra genetic diversity to give us an edge sure. in expanding our population. Sure. And I love talking to you because Karen, the details, the data is so fascinating. How are you seeing type and how far off type are the dogs that you're bringing in as a crossbreeding mate, for example? Anecdotally, the Chinook phenotype is that of a very natural dog. We have to be very careful to discern between the actual Chinook type versus sort of. Right. But I think as an example, our standard is pretty wide. You know, the ear standard could be interpreted as there should be two. Right. We prefer match. Right. And we prefer drop. I think I saw that. Yes. (laughs) But really, if you have two up, that's fine. If you have one up and one down, also fine. So we have a little bit of a broader type spectrum, if you want to think of it Mm -hmm, that way. mm -hmm. Generally, what we see is by the second generation, it depends on how strongly type is figuring into the breeding decisions. But by the second and definitely by the third generation, you've basically got type. I mean, we could have from the prior program sent some third generation dogs through into a breed ring and you could never pick them out from the purebreds, even if you tried. Right now we have four different versions of F1s on the ground. So that's from a Cephalus Siberian, a Labrador Retriever, a Bernese Mountain Dog, and a Tamascan Dog. And I wouldn't say that the first generation phenotype would necessarily be one you would pick out as Chinook, Mm -hmm. but structurally, you know, I've had Pat Hastings evaluate litters and not really focusing on head Mm -hmm. or color, Mm -hmm. the structure meets the Chinook standard in those puppies, even at the first generation. And color is, thanks to some genetics tools, it's a one generation fix if you want to prioritize it. Right. Ginger, did you have something too? Well, and that's, again, going back, color is one of the places where you see a split between the AKC standard and the UKC standard. The UKC standard puts the majority of the focus on traits that affect the dog's working ability. And as I always say, ears and color don't pull the sled. The UKC standard restricts the dogs to tawny only. They DQ any color other than tawny. But historically, Even in the very first generations, going back to the dog named Chinook himself, there were black and tan dogs. There were buff-colored dogs. So the UKC standard chooses to incorporate all historical colors where the AKC standard restricts them. On the UKC side of the question is that we want non-working traits of the dog 
that do influence the type to be of lower concern than traits that actually affect the type. What would you consider the hallmark of a Chinook? What is the defining characteristic? How do I look across a big field at a lineup of dogs and say, this one's a Chinook and that one's uh, something else? To me, it is the silhouette of the dog. And to add a little bit of confusion to it, we do tend to see two different silhouettes on occasion, that being a heavier built freighting style of Chinook versus a slightly more square, racier type of Chinook. But nonetheless, there is the depth of chest, the strong neck, the powerful hindquarters that I can recognize as being part of a Chinook. The head will be roughly equal in length to that of the muzzle. The muzzle is not pointy like you would see in a German Shepherd or a Sighthound at all. It has a nice broad nose that allows the dog to breathe easily when it's running or just simply pulling a heavier weight and say a weight pull competition. The power in the front end has to be there to dig in and the hindquarters are, it's like a four-wheel drive dog rather than a two-wheel drive dog. The coat is not as standoffish right. on the body that you would see on a Malamute. Plus, let's face it, we don't blow dry them out and foof them up for the show ring at the level that you would your Malamute. It's going to lie flatter. It's got a texture that is a little bit different than the Malamute. The undercoat is very soft. It is thick. It is weather and climate dependent. So a dog that lives in Florida will never have the same amount of undercoat as a dog that lives in New England or the Rockies. But the dog is versatile that way. The same dog can live in Florida and move to Montana and the coat will adapt in the mm -hmm. winters. Right. And I find it's not quite as hard of a outer coat as you see in Malamutes, but then again, it's not so soft as to collect a lot of moisture. Right. It's got a lot of natural lanolin in it. Okay. It can be any shade of tawny. It can be black with tan points. It can be what we call buff is a creamy base color with gold overtones. And I hate to say it, I know a good coat when I get my hands on one. Right, right. Okay, so Karen, here's your chance. You take a stab at it. What do you think it is that is the defining feature that when I'm looking at a lineup in the working group and I've got a Chinook and a Kita and a Malamute, how do I know what's what? So the Chinook is the northern breed dog body with the herding breed tail and the sporting breed head 
and the herding breed devotion to its owner. Interesting. Credibility. I like that. Okay. Continue. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's about the look, obviously, because that's what standards and type right. are partially about. But to me, type also is the heart and the soul. And they're a herding breed masquerading as a northern breed or vice versa, depending on how you want to look at it. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. We will have links and information in the blog post listeners. So check it out. Kind of a fascinating study in saving a breed. All right, you guys, I'm super excited. Okay. Cattle management, as we all know, can be overwhelming. Breeder Cloud Pro, they got you. This exciting new web-based kennel management software was developed by breeders who are also professional software engineers. Nice. Number one on everybody's wish list is an app to create pedigrees. Ask and you shall receive. Search Breeder Cloud Pro's shared pedigree database or build your own pedigrees. Building and maintaining an affordable, accessible website for education about your breed and your breeding program is another challenge that we all face. The eKennel solution at Breeder Cloud Pro enables you to create your own website and easily link your dogs and litter gallery from the app to promote your kennel. And no more muss and fuss when the puppies are ready to head out to their new homes. Invite your puppy buyers to the pet portal where they can sign contracts, pay invoices, share pictures, yes, see their puppy's health records, and easily register their puppy with AKC Reunite. This software solution lets you manage everything from your litter's worming and vaccination dates to income and expense reports. And, P.S., burn your exploding file cabinet. That's right. Unlimited storage for photos, records, and contact information. The 21st century is calling, and Breeder Cloud Pro answered. Keep all of your data at your fingertips on your desktop, phone, or tablet. Breeder Cloud Pro was built with complete portability and easy access across different platforms. And customer support? That's a real thing from people who get it. Stop by my partner page and click the Breeder Cloud Pro link to learn more. Use the code PureDogTalk at sign up to receive a 30-day free trial. Like the NPR of dogdom, Pure Dog Talk is here for you to make sense out of everyday things, to add nuance to your understanding and tools to your tech box, to bring history to life and propel the living history of purebred dogs into the future. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. 
Our dog show superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the super's desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk. 